Hi everyone, it's Crypto Dentist here. So we've got a new sponsor, and we are really excited about this one. It's Macrodisiac, the man, the myth, the legend himself, David Bell. David has recently launched his weekly Macrodisiac email, which is essentially a trader's guide to macroeconomics for less than half a cup of coffee a day. If you follow him already on Twitter under the at Macrodisiac underscore handle, don't forget the underscore there, so that's at macrodisiac underscore, then you'll know already the kind of critical analysis that he brings to the table from his trading background. You'll get a weekly email covering all kinds of macroeconomic themes and topics from the likely impact and effects of central bank and government policy statements to David's own views on the markets and trade ideas he's looking at. So if you want to sign up to his newsletter, it's $24.99 a month. That's £24, British pounds and pence, $24.99 a month, and he'll soon be accepting Bitcoin. So if you're looking for a unique take on the markets, the global economy, and how it all hangs together, then sign up now. The link is in the show notes, so head on over there and you can sign up. This is Alex Gladstein. Welcome to Crypto and Grill. Hi everyone and welcome back. It's your host Crypto Dantas here and I'm back once again with the Renegade Master Stig of the Pump. Stig, how are things? I'm good, I'm good. Super excited to be here today. We're entering into a topic of uh, one that I enjoy a lot around privacy and data self-sovereignty. Um, so I'm super excited about our guest today. Good. So if you're a regular listener, then you know what we're trying to do here. We are aiming to demystify the world of Bitcoin blockchain, Austrian economics, innovation, and why all of this matters. Um, the session today is something we've been looking forward to for a while, as a lot of our previous content has focused on the what of Bitcoin and how it fits into money and technology. We are delighted today to welcome Alex Gladstein, Chief Strategy Officer at the Human Rights Foundation, to discuss censorship, freedom, and why Bitcoin is a key tool in an increasingly complex and restricted world. Alex, welcome. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for being here. The pleasure's all ours. Um, so, look, to, to kick us off, it would be great if we could start with some context for our listeners about who you are, uh, what you do, and uh, we can go from there. Absolutely. Um, source. So, my background is more traditionally in the human rights space, I am the chief strategy officer of the Human Rights Foundation, which is a nonprofit charity organization based in New York, uh, headed by our chairman, Gary Kasparov of chess fame, but also of, uh, you know, being critical to Vladimir Putin fame. And um, we were founded by a Venezuelan activist named Thor Halverson in 2005. So I started working for, for HRF in 2007. And our founding mission is to focus essentially on uh, civil liberties and personal freedoms and human rights of people who live under closed uh, societies or, or, you know, authoritarian societies, uh, places where people don't have the same rights and freedoms as, as, uh, as they might have elsewhere. And so what does uh, Bitcoin have to do with any of the above then? Well, for many years, I, I didn't think too much about economics or finances or currency or monetary policy uh, as part of my job. And I think that was a big mistake. Um, at the end of the day, one of the ways that governments, especially um, authoritarian governments kind of control their population is through money and, and through the money supply and through the production of money and uh, the rules of money. So, for example, in uh, many dictatorships, uh, what happens is the government um, prints uh, huge amounts of money, uh, devaluing the savings 
uh, and the sort of everyday money that people make in, in, in many of these countries and in many dictatorships, like many people work in the public sector, right? So their wages are, are being sort of denominated in that sort of government currency. So you have like this huge economic system denominated and, and powered by a government currency that is just being like, uh, you know, devalued because it because the government continues to print more and more and more of it to fund whether it's corruption, war, whatever, whatever it's doing, uh, malfeasance, etc. And what ends up typically happening in, in, in a lot of these cases is the government will just like demonetize. It'll just say, oh, well, like these bills or these these denominations aren't valid anymore. So you have to like turn them into us and we'll give you new ones. Um, in some cases, like in North Korea, for example, about 10 years ago, the, the government there um, just basically announced one day that like all money that exists is invalid and you have to come get the new kind. So this is something that in, you know, in, maybe not to that extreme example, but has certainly happened in many different dictatorships and authoritarian regimes around the world. Um, and, and in this way, governments can really control society. And I think that Bitcoin is really interesting because it is poised to break the monopoly over money and economics and finance that uh, governments have sort of had up until this point. And I think uh, it's interesting you said you're talking there about North Korea because we, we've seen that recently with, with India, I believe. Um, you know, they, they just took some, some high-value notes out of uh, circulation and if you didn't exchange uh, any notes that you had um, – in the in the sort of requisite time frame, then that was it. It's, it doesn't have any value, which to some families and uh, and people in India that could be you know months or even sort of even more of earnings that they've saved. Um, yeah, and this is not some niche thing. I mean, you mentioned India, which is a country of more than a billion people, but look at any sort of uh, high profile case of of high inflation, uh, whether it's Argentina in Latin America or Turkey. Uh, in Central Asia or Zimbabwe in, in Southern Africa. I mean, all over the world, you have these cases. I mean, you've seen it in, uh, you know, all over the place the last many decades, whether it's Brazil or Greece or Ukraine. Um, you, you have cases of sort of runaway inflation where, again, the government like prints money to address some crisis is usually like the PR case or the outward sounding case. But in, at the end of the day, there's this thing called the Cantillon effect, named after a British banker from the 19th century, Thomas Cantillon. And he, uh, he basically pointed out that when a government produces more money, like the, the beneficial effects go immediately to like the elite, meaning to the people who are closest to the banking system. Uh, and, and they don't really trickle down to others. In fact, when a huge amount of money is printed into the system, it, it really helps the people at the top and it, it like, you know, hurts the people at the bottom. Right. So when you see like governments, uh, you know, printing, printing more money, whether it's to uh, solve a solution, you know, to, to provide a solution to a potential problem that, that they claim they have, um, you know, or in reality, maybe to like fund corruption or, 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 or just to like keep up, keep themselves alive in, in a situation where if they weren't able to print more money, they would not be remaining alive. Let's put it that way. Um, yeah, you have just like you know, this causes like real hurt and, and damage to the average person in that country who's, again, whose savings is diminished, whose purchasing power is, is diminished, right? So, um, you know, I didn't even mention the most egregious case of this, which is Venezuela. So um, here you have a country of 30 million people where the currency has, uh, for the last few years, had an inflation rate of like in the, in the millions of percent and where like the real purchasing power of each citizen deteriorates dramatically every month um, where, you know, real prices of stuff just like, uh, you know, dr like dr within like within a matter of days or weeks, like dramatically change um, to the point where, um, you know, I was talking to a Venezuelan friend of mine the other day, the other day, and, you know, he's just saying how crazy it is to watch uh, the prices of, of goods like of an iPhone go from like, uh, you know, a th like 500 to a thousand to um, 10,000 to a million. Do you know what I mean? Like these are yeah. the kind of things that happen kind of in front of you. So th this is just something that um, 
it's not just what I was just trying to say is it's not just sort of a niche thing. It, it happens all over the world. And Bitcoin is a very interesting alternative way of doing things. Um, uh, sorry to interrupt you there. I think it's more it's more the desire to ask you any kind of question. Um, my immediate question, though, is surely then it's it kind of government backed digital currencies or government owned digital currencies are slightly to be feared. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I, I think it all depends on what kind of government you have. OK, so if you live in a democracy, there are certain risks you can take with your privacy, um, <laughs> let's say, and, and, and you can essentially outsource a lot of your sovereignty to representatives who, you know, will more or less represent you in a, in a democratically elected parliament. And there's separation of powers and rule of law. And, you know, I, I think there's good reason for people who live in places like um, Australia or New Zealand or the United States or Canada or France or Japan or Costa Rica uh, or Estonia to, to be like a little less concerned. Um, I don't think they should rest on their laurels and, and, and you know, I think they should be vigilant um, and, and demand that their civil liberties be protected. But I don't think it's fair to compare what they're going through to what, what people are going to go through in dictatorships. This is a this would be like moral equivalence. So yeah, it is certainly bad that like Britain and Australia are trying to like crack down on encryption, and no doubt will will certainly crack down hard on on Bitcoin. But this is this is not like you can't like lump this in the same bucket with what's going to happen in, for people in China or Iran, right? Like yeah. this is not yeah. is not really similar. Like people in these countries. That, ha that are ruled by dictators and authoritarian governments don't have the ability to push back. They don't have the ability to sue their government. Um, they don't have the ability to protest or write an op-ed in the newspaper or even like give a whistleblowing anonymous tip to a newspaper organization that can go properly investigate what's going on. So I think, I think you know, the risk of, of digital centralized currency is real for all of us, but it's, it's really, really a problem for people who live under dictatorships. And we're seeing that play out live right now in China today. So if we if we kind of step back slightly, then um, let's let's just talk for, for a moment about the Human Rights Foundation more broadly. Um, you know, what are the things that um, that are interesting to you? And what, we'll come back to Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies as a, as a potential solution for some of these, thi these things. But um, how does the Human Rights Foundation think about freedom, censorship, uh, protest, privacy, um, and what's the kind of challenge um, in the world today that, that people may not be aware of? Well, we are students of, again, dictatorship. So we work with activists and journalists and dissidents from authoritarian countries. So our respect for things like privacy personal freedoms, private property are, are heightened by the interactions we've had. And, and indeed, many of my colleagues have suffered, you know, personally. Um, so we are taking a harder line on, let's say, civil liberties and personal freedoms maybe than other organizations, because we've seen what happens when they disappear, right? So um, there are many good, um, you know, sort of examples of this, but you can you you can kind of like let a society deteriorate. I mean, you you can have a more or less open and free society, and if you don't if you don't pay attention and, and defend civil liberties, um, really bad things can happen. So, for example, uh, in the cases of Turkey and Russia and Venezuela, you have these three democratically elected leaders in Erdogan and Chavez and Putin, who over time, you know basically deleted their opponents and rigged the system and, you know, jailed the journalists and broke up and basically kind of, um, I guess, emasculated the uh, oligarchs and, and turned them, turned themselves into, you know, dictatorships basically over time. So it's, it's quite important for everybody to, to, to defend these, these rights and freedoms. And I, I think that that's the perspective that we have coming from HRF is that um, kind of we've seen, you know, what happens if, if, if we don't protect these things. And is there a stat, I, I think, uh, I believe you've written about before, um, around 4 billion people around the world? Yeah, our, under a... 
our organization does uh, an internal study, and you know, right now it changes, of course, but um, we 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 consider about fifty-two percent of the world's population to be living in you know in thrall of an authoritarian regime, right? So that's about four billion people. Um, who live under a society that does not permit free expression, that does not permit uh, a free press, that does not permit private property, that does not permit freedom of association, um, that would not give you a free and fair trial, that does not allow for free and fair elections. That's that's pretty significant, and, I, and you know we and we believe that that actually drives a lot of disparities in the world and inequalities of the world um, more than what people would think. So, for example you would look at something like the UN Sustainable Development Goals for like one model for how the world, quote unquote, has gotten together to decide how are we going to make the world better? Well, we're going to focus on these like 17 goals, right? But if you actually look closely, um, authoritarianism is certainly not a focus of these goals. Um, and words like democracy and journalism and privacy aren't even in the goals mentioned zero times out of like tens of thousands of words. So what you start to realize is that a lot of these like world initiatives are really authoritarian initiatives um, backed by governments like the United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia and Russia and China. Um, and they're able to kind of um, kind of put lipstick on a pig and say, hey, yeah, look, look at this like initiative we're pursuing to like, you know, bring equality to our nation or save the environment in our particular country. I mean, it's all just nonsense because they don't there's no independent media or press in these countries to actually measure whether or not that these people could like actually get to these goals. So, um, you know, I think that's just something you know important to consider is that um, not only does such so much of the world live under authoritarianism, but it, it remains such like a, you know, and not talked about topic. Um, and if you actually look at things like refugees, um, 96% of the world's refugees come from authoritarian countries. No one is fleeing New Zealand or Denmark or Costa Rica. Do you know what I mean? Um, 18 of the world's 20 poorest countries, abject poverty, are dictatorships. Um, I think it's 23 out of the world's 25 countries that have the worst access to clean drinking water um, are dictatorships. And it would probably not surprise you and your listeners uh, that, that, you know, certainly the, the top five to 10 worst countries to be a woman in the world are all authoritarian regimes. So, you know, whether you care about gender equality uh, or, or public health, um, or whether you care about life expectancy, literacy rates, innovation, patent rates. I mean, if you just look at the patent rates of dictatorships versus democracies, I mean, the smart people in dictatorships, what do they do when they come up with something that could change the world? They leave the dictatorship and they go, they go file the patent somewhere where property rights are going to be respected, right? So they they'll leave a place like Saudi Arabia and go to France or something like that. Um, and, and the most interesting one is war and peace. So, um, you know, there's this, the, actually the, uh, there's this ironclad law of political science that states that, um, so far at least, that, that no two liberal democracies have, have fought each other. And this is true. So, you know, war really is, is an authoritarian uh, creature. So it would be really good to hone in a little bit more and, and try and understand potentially what scenarios um, some people might be fleeing or potentially um, what kind of challenges might emerge. And I, th I was thinking in my head, you feel free to use these examples or f feel free to use better ones if you have them, but of two um, perhaps different ends of the spectrum. Um, one, the Hong Kong protests that we're seeing at the moment um, sure. and how that fits in. And at the other side, you know, I guess, uh, and all of the things that go with that, AI, facial recognition, social credit scoring, mm -hmm. and the intersection with uh, potentially government control. Well, let's, let's work with Hong Kong. So, so far in our conversation, we kind of touched on, you know, what the Human Rights Foundation does, uh, why things like privacies and freedoms are important. Um, and we've talked about why, why authoritarianism is such a problem in today's world. Um, let me let me draw like out a a wider point about decentralization that can then help us come into talking about Hong Kong, which which I view is really the front lines of, of the struggle for freedom, and then get maybe more into Bitcoin. But basically, like democracy is a tool that humans invented to decentralize political power. So when I say that. 
52% of the world's population lives under an authoritarian state, well, 48% lives under more or less a free country in a free society. That's pretty amazing, actually. So that's been like an incredible achievement of humanity is that 48% of us now live under a society where like we collectively as society, you know, you know, effectively control the leadership as opposed to the other way around. Um, and that's been really beneficial for society. All those statistics I just mentioned go the other way, meaning um, no matter what you care about, whether it's, uh, you know, income equality or uh, scientific innovation or uh, public health, like these things are all better in free, open and decentralized societies, right? So I think one thing that humans did that was extraordinary so far in our relatively brief time on this planet was, was decentralized political power using the tool of democracy. Well, the second thing we decentralized was information. Um, information used to be uh, the area of governments and sort of like ivory towers and institutions like the church or the mosque, right? And then the printing press started to really shatter all of that, right? Um, giving more people the opportunity to like produce information which could be widely disseminated. Um, and then over time, the radio and then eventually the internet completely shattered it. So today, like billions and billions of people can access all of in the information in the world. And even if you live behind like a digital iron curtain, like in China, like you can use a VPN if you're, if you're, if you're able to and lucky enough to figure that out. Um, to, to, again, to access all the world's information. So everybody's got like the Library of Alexandria in their pocket now. This is like an incredibly disruptive force. And I think that that argue, you know, inarguably is a positive thing. So I would say from my perspective that objectively speaking, democracies have been, democracy has been a really positive tool. The internet has been a really positive tool. And these things have like decentralized power, provided checks and balances and given the people the power over their rulers, right? So the third area, that I think humans are just starting to decentralize is money. And Bitcoin is the tool that they're using to do that, right? So um, Bitcoin is going to be this tool that I think over time, over hundreds of years, will have a similar impact in the world where it'll give people access to a decentralized money system that's not controlled by anybody and is censorship resistant. And most importantly, provides a quality of opportunity, um, meaning anybody can access Bitcoin. Within, you know, all you need is the internet. Um, you can buy a dollar of Bitcoin. You can have almost no money at all. Like I think the average American family has like negative money in savings, right? But the thing is, whereas to invest in something like real estate or blue chip stocks or fine art, you need a huge amount of capital or perhaps you even need like um, a certain accreditation uh, in some cases. Um, you don't need a bank account to buy Bitcoin. You don't need anybody's permission at all. You, you can earn a dollar or two dollars or five dollars. And you can put that into this asset, which is really revolutionary and extraordinary. And I think that these three things are, meaning the decentralization of, of governance and information and money are, are a really important uh, transformative driver in the world. And, and really the only thing that's going to save us from what I would say is otherwise an inexorable uh, decline towards like a global surveillance state. So Yuval Noah Harari is a very famous uh, historian. He wrote *Sapiens* and um, *21 Rules for the 21st*, *21 Lessons for the 21st Century*, and a whole bunch of other quite good books. And he says that technology favors tyranny. And and I think I agree with him when you talk about facial recognition and AI and big data analysis. I mean, it's very difficult to think about AI and big data analysis and machine learning, and and consider and ask yourself how will this benefit civil liberties like the the, 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 the examples are far, far and few between, let's put it that way. Um, however, I would ask you to think that these are like centralized technologies, right? They're very much authoritarian in nature. Um, but the decentralizing forces are, are, are here too, and, and, they're, and they're, they're not going to go away. And I think they are our lifeline and our hope um, against this sort of Orwellian, um, potentially this Orwellian dystopia. And Hong Kong is like the front line for this, right? So in Hong Kong, we have uh, a free city, to, let's just say to this point, that is, is on the edge, right? Um, is holding on to its freedoms. Its political leadership has already been compromised and is in the hands of the Chinese, right? But the people have not, right? So the people 
who by and large before 2014 were like not exactly the protesting type. They have risen up and now they have risen up in a much larger sense. And they're fighting for their freedoms. And, you know, what's really interesting is um, in many ways that they're they're fighting for decentralization. You know, they don't want to be under this highly centralized uh, uh, Communist Party system. And if you actually look at their tactics, you can start to understand why things like Bitcoin are going to be important in the future. So, for example, like when a Hong Konger wants to go protest, they don't want to be surveilled and spied on. Right. Um, so when they bought, when they go into the subway system, the metro system, they don't want to use uh, the, their like ID linked electronic card their octopus card to do so, right? So they have been lining up in droves over the summer and in queues to buy like kind of one-time use or like top-up, cash top-up cards so that they can traverse the metro system without being spied on. Um, sure, the metro can look and say, oh, this, like we see a person has, has gotten in here and gotten off there, but they can't link that person to any meaningful like digital footprint, right? And I think that's the key thing. Um, that cash still gives us. So cash still gives us this sort of like privacy and anonymity when it comes to our behaviors in society. And this is a really important check against that sort of like surveillance state, right? But I think we all kind of know that in 10, 15 years, cash is going to be gone. Like children being born today won't use paper money in any meaningful sense. I think that's like a highly likely um, prediction. And in that case, we're going to need something that is like cash, but is digital in order to preserve our ability to protest and hold governments accountable. So, I mean, if Hong Kong, you know, didn't have any cash, I mean, it would just be much harder for that protest movement to work. And then you've got the increased um, challenges of facial recognition. But you know what? People are starting to use masks and mess with the cameras using um, laser pointers. And, you know, it's basically like protest in the age of surveillance is unfolding in Hong Kong. And it's something that's going to come to all of us. So, this this is something that's that's like a, a, a presage or like a glimmer of the future, but it's unfolding there. So I, I think it's really important that everybody pay attention to Hong Kong, uh, support the Hong Kongers however we can, um, because their struggle is going to be our struggle sooner rather than later. And, and I do think that financial privacy and financial sovereignty is going to be a big part of our ability to, to fight against um, a global surveillance state. I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. Um, just to dig into this one sort of step further, um, people refer to sort of second or third order magnitude of data, i.e. the impact of being at those, those, that protest and being tracked through the subway through home and then the next day not being able to travel or go to school or buy a train ticket. Could we just um, dig into a little further on that? Yeah, well, I don't want to conflate. I mean, what I'm describing is the specific behavior of people in Hong Kong who you, who, who are using cash to buy metro cards much like if you were to use an oyster card uh, in london obviously you know that the authorities who see that you bought that oyster card with your visa they have your name and your address and everything and they can see exactly where you go right so you can start to understand that so in hong kong the hong kongers don't want that to happen so they use cash to top up and buy one-time use cards this way there's no way for the authorities to see where they're going in the same way, they use cash to buy SIM cards for their phones so they can have like an anonymous phone number, right? It's a burner phone number, and they can make a Telegram account that's not connected to their personal identity or name. And they can use that Telegram account to share information about protests and, and tell people in these large Telegram groups like where police are, what's happening, etc. So, So you can like actually function digitally anonymously today. Um, using using cash as your primary vector um, of privacy, um, which is really exciting. But I think what you're hinting at is like across, you know, let's say across the chasm in mainland China, um, where there's a war on cash uh, and where the government has basically encouraged everybody to be on-ramped onto uh, WeChat and Alipay and these sort of centralized digital systems. So where you have societies now where like people don't really use cash anymore, and they're discouraged from doing so, increasingly so. Um, yeah, they, they have they don't have that option. So, given that 
your spend or your your spending habits and behaviors say more about you than your words. Um, this allows the government just this incredible uh, level of of uh, micro surveillance over your daily life that it didn't have before, right? So what happens now is that uh, people's spending habits um, are now liable to put them at risk of political persecution in China. So um, if you say something or do something or buy something that the government does not like, um, you know, this can ruin your entire ability uh, to function in society. Um, and, and that's really this big stick that looms over you uh, in China. And the, the carrot would be just to, you know, if you just play by the rules and you're like a, like a good citizen, then you'll get lots of rewards, right? And there are a lot of actually experiments with this idea of social credit, um, where if you like are a good up, upstanding citizen and you're patriotic and loyal and you don't say anything bad about the government and you do everything like properly, then you get like better, you can get access to like leave the country or get better internet or get a fast track visa or get a better rate on a mortgage or um, you send your kids to a good school. And this is a bit of a generalization, but you see what I'm getting at. And, and if you're not good, which, which could range from, yes, in the traditional, like, let's say, Western sense of, like, you didn't pay your bill on time, but also including this new concept of, like, oh, well, like, if you're of a particular religion um, and you, you read a Quran, perhaps, or wear a beard, or um, you are uh, sympathetic with Tibetans or Hong Kongers or whatever, you know, this also can end your ability to buy and sell things, right? or travel or send your kids to a good school or have access to good internet, right? So this is what's happening in China um, when we talk about social credit is kind of like the merging of our political, uh, you know, you know, uh, speech and, and our daily behaviors and habits and our spending power, right? Yeah, and it's, it's really interesting to think about this through the lens of um, other countries and other situations because it's very easy to sit in the UK or, or in America or other countries, uh, perhaps in Europe, and just not even think that going to a protest is um, is going to potentially damage your uh, your freedom or have some kind of, um, as, as Stig mentioned, a second order magnitude. You know, and this, I think the reality is this social credit scoring system is, is quite an invasive um, mechanism, um, effectively, of actual Yeah, and it'll, it'll happen to you, too. And, you yeah. know, look, we, you know, we're living in a world where, like, it should be obvious to folks, but, like, in dictatorships, like in Venezuela, if the government finds out you go to a protest, and they're not as technologically savvy as the Chinese, but let's say they figure out somehow, um, yeah, they can just, like, prevent you from being on the state payroll, so uh, these things are, are, are tools that governments have always used. The Cubans and the East Germans, both the Stasi regime in East Germany had like this crazy surveillance setup. If you've ever seen this movie called The Lives of Others, I'd highly recommend no, you watch it. Changed. won an Oscar about a decade ago. It's a fantastic movie, which, which really brings to life uh, how things were under East Germany. Um, but essentially, yeah, like if you were caught being like, you know, you know, like, you know, anti-revolutionary, let's say, um, or like pro-capitalist or pro-Western in any way. Yeah, this could this could ruin the you know opportunities for you and your children. Um, and this still happens in Cuba today, where dissidents are punished and their children aren't allowed to go to good schools, etc. So the the dictators have always like tried to use this carrot and stick um, approach to keeping citizens in line, but they've never had the technological power that they're starting to have today. Um, and this is where you've all know Harari's right when he says sort of generally speaking, technology favors tyranny, like big data analysis is allowing dictators to collect enormous amounts of information about their citizens um, and then analyze and study that data um, and then basically zero in on the dissidents and the critics, punish them and reward everybody else. And this is why we need decentralized technology. This is why de decentralized technology matters for freedom. This is why encrypted messaging matters for freedom. Um, you know, this is why the idea of digital cash, Bitcoin matters for freedom. This is why decentralized access to the Internet matters for freedom. You know, in the future, in an ideal world, if you live in one country, 
you won't just have one internet service provider. You'll be able to choose from 20 to 30 different satellite networks. I mean, this would be the dream, right? Where, where it's much more difficult for a government to turn off your internet. Um, you know, you can even have access to like mesh networks, local internet services. Um, this would be a one way of keeping the government from, from having all powerful control over you. So these kind of decentralized technologies are going to be essential um, to protecting our freedom and human rights in an increasingly digital age. And what are your views, just taking it a bit further then, on investment? Because you said, you know, there's this notion that technology favors tyranny. But I think there may also be another um, investment and uh, and direct uh, threat from finance as well. Because you have um, deep influence being exerted. And we saw that recently with uh, the NBA. So for anyone that didn't isn't aware, I think there was uh, one of the owners or someone relatively senior in uh, the NBA basketball um, community in America tweeted something against the Chinese government or in favor of the Hong Kong protests. And we saw a real retraction um, from NBA in the media. Um, and it, it felt and came across as though it was being pressured from Chinese investors who are heavily uh, exposed to the, the NBA um, entity. Is there any, do you have any views on either that episode itself or the broader impact well, of direct investment in these things? Sure. I mean, look, we need to be guarded about our societies. And we need to be clear-eyed about the fact that authoritarian governments are now very heavily invested in Western free societies, okay? So whether it's the Emiratis in, in from the Gulf region or the Saudis or the Chinese or the Russians, I mean, there, there's a, a huge amount of uh, state investment. Um, and a lot of it's like kind of like hidden away in like SoftBank or whatever. But like a huge amount of like even in Silicon Valley, like venture capital investment um, in Hollywood, a huge amount of um, like investment in films uh, comes from these dictatorships and they exert enormous uh, influence over our technology, our business and our culture. So I'll ask you a question. When's the last time you saw a big budget Hollywood movie that was critical of China, of the current Chinese government? The Chinese government is the best government in the world. Is that not what I'm supposed to say? <laughs> no, I'm just saying you, you haven't. Because uh, the no, Chinese government effectively controls Hollywood. Okay? Um, and the Saudis do too, right? So you look at these movie studios and they get bankrolled by these governments. It's just something we need to be aware of. And when you talk about this example of the National Basketball Association, the NBA, this is really interesting actually because it's really helping expose the level of control that this foreign third this foreign police state is having over an american organization and i'm sure it's even more exaggerated in a, in a smaller country like australia or uh, the united kingdom um i mean you know essentially in the uk we remember when david cameron essentially bowed down to xi jinping and laid out the red carpet right so i mean trump at least for all of his uh flaws is able to be a little more, uh, you know, independent and, and is able to sort of stand up to Xi Jinping a little bit more, um, generally speaking, uh, than maybe some of the smaller governments have been able to. But he even even so has been so terrible on on, on Hong Kong. And, and, and again, the reason why Hong Kong is important when we look at like this example of the NBA is that, uh, I mean, to understand both sides, the NBA is like like many other organizations, like from Western countries, European countries, et cetera, uh, from America, they are realizing their biggest second market may be in China, right? They want to expand there. So the NBA for years has been having like exhibition games there, has been, you know, trying to get Chinese players to play in the NBA. Yao Ming was like the, the sort of famous uh, Chinese player who, was, who played for the Houston Rockets, ironically, who um, is now like a god in China, right, because of, because of his NBA stardom. And, you know, the thing that like, let, let's say like American companies and governments shouldn't forget is that like they actually hold the leverage here. So like, okay, so the, the general manager of the Houston Rockets tweeted an image that was supportive of the Hong Kong protesters recently, right? And uh, the Chinese sort of state media and all the sort of pro-communist party people on social media got really pissed off immediately, especially because it was the Rockets, right? This team that Yao Ming was on, right? So it led to this like immediate frenzy 
where he, Daryl Morey, was forced to like delete his tweet and the NBA apologized and he apologized and all these players apologized, you know, because they have all these financial investments in China. Um, and I think, you know, something you, you, you should understand is that, um, you know, from the Chinese perspective, like the average Chinese person, you know, first of all, they're sort of like brainwashed. They, they only see some information. So a lot of them are sort of like brainwashed into thinking that the Chinese government is like this great thing, right? Um, but on the other hand, I mean, they're also like, I mean, from their perspective, you know, they don't know much about the prison camps in Xinjiang or, you know, they don't really think too hard about the Orwellian police state that China is. Um, that's just not something that they're, that they're, that they're having to think about all the time. Their friends aren't being hauled away. Let's put it that way. Like, like if you're upper middle class in China, like you're doing pretty well. Right. Um, and they look at this guy, the general manager of the rockets and they're like, how, like, how did, why did he do this? This is so insane that he would tweet that. Right. So their perspective is very different than like my perspective of a human rights act activist where I'm like, oh, that's so awesome that he tweeted that. Right. Um, very exciting that he would tweet that. And now it's basically led to the point where the Chinese, Chinese, Chinese may pull out of the NBA entirely. Um, but what's really interesting is that like, again, like the NBA sort of holds the cards here. I mean, the, it's not like the Chinese have the equivalent of like LeBron James or Kevin Durant, uh, you know, they, they, or James Harden, like they don't have these things. So they don't have these assets. So the NBA can actually be a lot more strong than I think it has been so far. So we'll have to kind of watch this, but it's kind of a, and the, the NBA is kind of like a symbol for a lot of other companies that are like facing this struggle over selling out entirely to the Chinese communist party. Um, so we have to look carefully at all of these businesses and companies, whether it's Apple or Blizzard or, um, American airlines or whatever. And, you know, we're starting to see them kind of like acquiesce to the Chinese line and we have to be very vigilant about this. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it does. We, we've got, there's a specific infrastructure, um, company in the UK called UK power networks, which basically manages all the distribution of electricity across the Southeast, South and London in particular. And that's wholly owned by a Chinese corporate or a number of Chinese corporations. Yeah, you should be, that should be terrifying to the average British citizen. I mean, it may not be terrifying right now, but like, but it could there's this, be. yeah, there's this law in China where it says that any Chinese company has to like hand over all data about its clients to, to the Chinese government on demand. It's called the national security law of China. So, I mean, all these folks in Britain, who are currently getting smart meters installed. Yeah, yeah, like all that data could be going to the Chinese government. I mean, that's that should be kind of scary. Um, and, you know, one day it will be, you know, but maybe maybe for now it's not so bad. And this is kind of what I was getting at earlier in the show where we talked about how, you know, maybe it's not so bad for people who still live under democracies who will protect, you know, where there's rule of law that will protect yeah. you. But, but I mean, think of the poor folks in, in some of these authoritarian countries in South, South Asia, Africa, Latin America, where mm. Chinese government's coming in, offering cheap loans and investments and basically rebuilding all the infrastructure. I mean, yeah. these countries are becoming basically like colonies of China. Well, wasn't it? I can't remember what it what voting. There was some big European voting um, thing that happened recently, where the majority of the African countries, for the first time ever, switched from a Western-sided vote to a China and Eastern-sided vote. Hey, it's happening. I, I mean, you're seeing the world change. I mean, right now, today, um, you know, America. I don't know if you're watching this, but like. From what we can observe, it seems like the United States is sort of pulling out of the Middle East, right? Or at least starting to pull out of Syria, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, guess who's guess who landed in Saudi Arabia today? Putin. And he's on a tour of the whole Middle East. So, look, I mean, I think people need to realize that, like, this is not a vacuum. Like, if the United States pulls out of the Middle East, then it's going to be a Chinese and Russian Middle East. Yeah. And I think... There's been a lot of blood and a lot of stupid stupidity with regard to American decision making. And I think the invasion of Iraq was a disaster. Um, but people do need to realize that, like, it's not like, oh, like, let's just have the Americans pull out and then everything will be fine. Yeah, it's not going to work like that. There's going to be some other great power that moves in. And I think the fact that the American government as a great power is still held accountable by its people and is a 
is a free is a free and elected democracy is is a really big deal compared to uh, Putin and Xi Jinping being able to sort of colonize the Middle East with their dictator brethren. So we'll have to see how it shakes out. But um, yeah, pe people can pe people people can you know can have their opinions, but. Uh, clearly, what we may end up see happening is, is is a stronger consolidation of authoritarianism around the world and a retreat by democracies into their own countries where they'll face their own issues. Now, which, amidst you, go ahead, go ahead. I was just going to say, which would be a complete disaster. Yeah, sure. I mean, it may be fine for me living in California yeah. that the United States retreats, but like, you know, I, I don't know. You'd have to go interview people in in the Middle East uh, about what they think. Um, but certainly positions are mixed. I, I mean, at the end of the day, I, I, <laughs> I feel like a lot of people who are like anti-US meddling in the Middle East, probably in 10 years will be a lot more anti-Putin and Xi Jinping meddling. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. I think it's sort of the grass is always greener thing. Um, but amidst all this sort of geopolitical transformation, this is why decentralized technology matters. Like we can be individually sovereign. We can have control over our finances. We can fight back against the surveillance state. And in many ways, Bitcoin is like the key to all of this. So, so bring it, bring it. You brought it very nicely back to the subject. Um, so, how, uh, what's the role of privacy coins in the future then? Because, as many people argue, yes, okay, Bitcoin is a good answer for a decentralized currency, but it doesn't necessarily offer you total privacy as what people would require, um, especially in an authoritarian, mm -hmm. authoritarian government. Yeah. So, something that that I have. Um, sort of changed my mind on, I suppose, over the last few years. And I think we should all be open to doing that, to being kind of Bayesian, right, in our decision-making and changing our mind when we encounter new data and better arguments. Um, but basically, like, privacy is uh, not, as financial privacy, like monetary privacy in a money, digitally speaking, is is only important if the money itself is sound, meaning if that money is going to be usable and reliable. That's kind of the most important thing, and then and then privacy is the second most important thing. So, so you can have a like a scientifically advanced like privacy coin that allows you and I to like exchange tokens from around the world with each other without anyone being able to meaningfully understand what we're doing with those tokens. However, like if we cannot convert those tokens readily into fiat money, that privacy coin isn't super useful. Does that make sense? Uh, like, 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 let's let's just say, like, I, and I'm a fan of all the privacy coins. Like, meaning I'm a fan of anyone trying to build privacy technology. So let's take the case of like Monero, Zcash. I mean, I think these projects are awesome. But what you have to understand is like the possibility that I can send. Monero Zcash to somebody in some random country and that they can convert that like quickly into fiat money so they can buy and sell things. Um, not very likely. The other thing that's that's important to note with any cryptocurrency is is usually if you're going to especially if you're going to use a digital exchange to turn that cryptocurrency into fiat money is you're going to get busted right there. I mean, that's where you kind of lose your privacy, right? So privacy is a tricky subject. I, I think that the soundness of the money is kind of the most important thing. And what, like, if, if I were to sort of make a prediction, I would probably say that like the most likely scenario is that Bitcoin becomes much more private moving forward. So there's a lot of like base level uh, evolutions happening um, with Bitcoin's main chain itself. And then there's promising developments with secondary technology like a lightning network, which is onion routed, right? So my hope would be able to be able to basically spend Bitcoin using something like Lightning um, and transact with everyone around the world and buy and sell things without revealing my identity. I've done a, I've done an essay for this on, on Medium where I really get into this, but um, I, I think this has a non-trivial chance of happening where in a couple of years I can use Lightning to buy things on Amazon and to transfer money to friends, uh, kind of all without revealing my personal identity. Because um, if you use the existing tools in the legacy financial system to do these things today, um, you're creating this massive digital footprint about yourself. 
So for me, it's not about creating like a decentralized identity. It's about not having an identity. So I, I don't want an, an identity. I want tons of different identities. I want lots of little identities that I use for different things. This is the only way to, to fight the surveillance state and surveillance capitalism is to really distribute your identity set so that it's like not possible to, to track. So if I use one particular, I mean, I could, you know, with Bitcoin, of course, you could, you could, you can use a different wallet for like, for any, anything you want. But in the future, if I have like one video gaming kind of address and I have one address for buying things retail on the internet and I have one address for buying coffee and I have one address for doing medical things. I mean, the thing is advertisers and governments won't be able to put two and two together, right? They can't kind of link these things together like they can now. And that provides us more protection. So I'm hoping that lightning brings us in that direction. Um, I think, and I'm, I'm, I, I would also predict like advancements in technology among privacy coins. And, you know, those, those are going to be really helpful um, primarily, I think, because they'll force Bitcoin developers to be, to, to focus more on privacy. Um, but I, I do see a lot of innovation happening um, in this space for sure. Amazing, Alex. We are uh, about out of time, but this has been absolutely fantastic, and we could probably have another three or four episodes. But uh, we will let you. Can we? Um, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, let's do it, man. We will let you get back to your day job. But um, one thing, one that we wanted to know before we finish: this wouldn't be an episode of Crypto and Grill if we didn't ask the all-important question. So uh, let's uh, let's have a uh, a future scenario that I hope I really hope this happens. All of the totalitarian leaders in the world have gathered at your house for a barbecue to listen to you talk about the importance of free freedom and human rights and hopefully change their minds because they're all very keen to do that. Um, what are you going to do uh, and stick on the grill to host them and mm. um, and keep them all happy and uh, friends for the day? Or well, give them food poisoning. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, if it's going to be all the dictators, I may call in a special catering company, but... Um, <laughs> Uh, let's say it's all of my dissident friends who come over. Um, I'm an avid griller myself. Um, I would probably try to ask, first of all, like, what do, you know, I don't want to impose my, uh, my preferences on everyone else, but I assume for the most part that we're dealing with people who will eat meat or fish. Um, and, uh, in that case, I would definitely have some, like, awesome grass-fed ribeyes uh i think that's like a, a a staple for me on the grill um and then maybe like get a nice piece of king salmon um that nice kind of fatty salmon that's that's wild caught and maybe put that on a cedar plank and get some some sort of maple glaze going on that um and then you know maybe maybe a piece of ahi tuna uh, maybe some shrimp, and and that's kind of how I would roll. Sounds awesome. Professional, almost worth becoming a totalitarian dictator just to come <laughs> to your house for a barbecue. So I thought you already were one. Yeah, <laughs> brilliant. Well, look, uh, Alex, this has been fantastic, and uh, we'll leave it there. If you're listening to this, you are the resistance. <laughs>